I want to uh, start out by uh, talking to uh, all those of you in the room who are married. So if I can just get a shout out from my married constituency, that would be great. How many of you guys are married? Wonderful. Some of you are looking down to make sure. Either way, it's great to have you here. Now, I have a specific question to ask all of the married folk here tonight. And actually, uh, probably creating an awkward moment in doing so, we'll go with it. Uh, my question of the married folk are this. If you were to think through the most amazing thing you have done for your spouse in the history of being married, what would be your answer to that question? Now, what's happening right now is uh, some of you are already trading looks, and uh, one of those looks is, you haven't done anything amazing, right? Like, that's one of the things that's going on. And the other look that's going on is kind of the look of, uh, like, letting you marry me was the most amazing thing I've ever done, right? Um, and, and some of you maybe already are starting text conversations or beginning to trade notes, uh, kind of trying to one-up each other. Uh, so I, I want you guys to really have a great conversation about that as uh, the night goes on or uh, later when you get home. But I would like to share one of my uh, thoughts um, about one of the awesome things I did in my marriage, um, in all humility. Uh, so a year ago last February, uh, I realized to myself that birthing three children uh, at a very young age uh, could be somewhat of a stressful situation, okay? And uh, anyone, any women in here agree with that? Okay. Okay, my wife seemed, you know, it's pretty stressful. The rest of you guys, well done. Anyway, and so I decided to myself, listen, I really need to bless my wife. She's amazing, doing a phenomenal job uh, with her children and being an amazing wife, and just in general, just awesome and hot, which is a whole other story. But, um, and so I, I thought to myself, what I really need to do is just is send her on a vacation. And, uh, and so I, I called her mom. She's really close with her mom and, and set up this whole, like, all-inclusive vacation for her and her mom. And just, I was really, really excited. And, uh, and so she came home one day, and I surprised her and, and uh, said, Babe, listen, uh, you're going for five days to uh, Cancun with your mom. It's going to be awesome. So just go have a great time. And, and so I put her on the plane. And then I think is when it dawned on me um, what was happening. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm obsessed with my children. I love my children. And then I think I realized, like, okay, like, it's, it's, the, it's the four of us, right? And we're, we're going to do this, and, and we'll get out the survival kit, and all that will be great. And then, I don't know if you remember anything about last February, but uh, the moment, that, the day, the morning that Heidi left to the airport, it, it began to snow. Now, um, th that's not that problematic. The problem is, some of you guys will remember last February, it was a heavy snow. In fact, so much so that what ended up happening is we meaning me and my children, were snowed in for that entire week, okay? Now, I know some of the rest, I know some of, the rest of you uh, were able to get out and do things. Uh, the problem is it's hard to shovel with like two kids in your hand, and, and so we were just snowed in. Now, um, if you know anything about me, you know that this is incredibly problematic because I am like antsy in five minutes in a closed space, right? So to be snowed in for a few days began to take its toll, and inevitably, there starts to be some conversation between my wife and I from Cancun. So she sends a nice email. Hey, having a great time uh, down here. It's like 85 and awesome, and I'm getting a tan and, you know, drinking virgin pina coladas and, you know, just having a great time. And so she asked the great question, which you know is coming. How are you? <laughs> All of you have been in this moment before. You've, you've been there if you're married. It's the moment where you can either heap on the guilt or really just say, it's all good, I hope you have a great time, we can't wait to see you, we miss you, we love you, XOXO. Like, all of you have been in that moment before. And, and initially, I started out thinking like, okay, yes, I'm sacrificing uh, for my wife, and this is great. And so I just, everything, honey, is, 
we're snowed in. Like we can't, we can't move, honey. I'm not sure how it is down there, but I've spent three whole days looking at walls and I love our kids, babe, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go crazy. And it was something to that effect. And I like reread it a couple times thinking like, thinking like, this isn't going to be good. She's going to get this and do the mom crazy thing down, you know, and, but, but I, I just, I hit send, you know, and, and I had this moment of make her. And so like, she has like a mom radar, like moms have a radar. Have you, have you noticed this? So she was like out of the beach and all of a sudden she's like, I've just received a stressful email from my husband. And so, and, and so, and so, so she, goes, she goes in and checks her email and, uh, and I get an email back literally like 20 minutes later and it's one line and says, do you want me to come home? Which is another moment of stress because... Because in your heart, now you can battle back. You can be sincere. You know, I shouldn't have said this. We're snowed and we're having a great time. But, you know, instead I said, no, 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 babe, really. It's all good. You enjoy the beach and the warm weather and the eating all you want. I'm just going to stay back here and sacrifice and take care of our children. You know what I'm saying? Like, you go ahead and enjoy yourself. What started out as this really thoughtful sacrifice... Uh, became something that wasn't so thoughtful anymore. Many of you have been in a position where you've sacrificed, you've given up something, and then because of your own pride and selfishness, soon it became a burden. You were trying to bless someone else in the process, but what you ended up doing was escalating yourself and your own sacrifice. Um, What I've realized in the studying of this text is I'm not so sure many of us have any idea or clue what a sacrifice really is. It's so easy for us in our flesh and pride to take something that's so precious and special and spin it. Can we agree? And so tonight's passage, listen, is a riddle. I mean, we're going to read it through once, and you're going to be like, como se dice? I mean, it's really weird and kind of wordy. And, but I'm telling you this, uh, us as a staff, as we've been wrestling with it all week, we've seen the puzzle pieces come together. And that's why, like, I'm extra excited tonight. So I, open, uh, I invite you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews uh, chapter 13. If you're just joining us, we uh, study uh, the scripture verse by verse, believing that it is uh, much better to just engulf God's word in the difficult text like tonight and some more uh, practical texts. And so uh, we're right at the end here, almost in a year and a half. We're going to read, actually we're studying quite a bit tonight from verse 10 through 16, and then we'll plow through it. I pray by the end of tonight, each of our ideas of what sacrifice is has completely morphed and shifted let's begin in verse 10 are you there say i'm there wonderful thank you verse 10 says this we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp so jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured for here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and finally verse 16 do not neglect to do good or to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God Uh, So the beginning, as you can see, uh, somewhat tricky. We're going to work through that. The end, a little bit more self-explanatory. We'll put all the puzzle pieces together, and let's begin here in verse 10. That says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent 
have no right to eat. Now, if you hear the word altar, what's the first things that come to your mind? I would imagine things like uh, the wedding altar, getting married at the altar. We uh, use the word altar in terms of a place that you kind of go to in the church. It's thought of maybe as the front place. The word altar has a huge biblical connotation. It really starts as the idea of sacrifice. In fact, the ancient Jews uh, used this bronze altar often in the Old Testament. Next slide. Uh, You'll see even some of the description there and some of the passages where this was used. Although Abraham was kind of the originator of the altar per se, this is one of the first used by the Israelites in terms of sacrifice. They would bring the sacrifice and use the altar to put the sacrifice there. When I think of an altar, because I grew up in a very traditional church setting, uh, I think of something like this. This would be a typical church, kind of traditional church with a large massive organ. Any organ fans here, right? Okay, um, our, uh, just so you know, our new church building, though we like the organ, still will not have uh, an organ in it. Um, uh, I know much to many of your demises, but that little table that's right there underneath the cross, that's what a church might call an altar. Now just by definition, it's a table or a place where a sacrifice is laid. If we go back to verse 10... The scripture says we have an altar. Well, the we is who? Remember, Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. Jews who have come to Christ for the most part and are struggling to wrestle through getting rid of the old or rather seeing the old for what it really is. The old covenant and the old testament, the old way, pointing to the power and the truth of Jesus. So he says, we have an altar, which means there's at least two altars. And listen, my heart's really, really, really been drawn to this word. The staff can attest on Monday, we were sitting around talking about the passage. And I said, there's something powerful about this word altar. And I don't quite know yet what it is, but all I know is my heart is leaping towards it. And all of a sudden, I began to realize why. If the one altar... The place of sacrifice for the ancient Jews is the bronze altar in the tent or eventually the temple, the place where animals would be poured out, their blood poured out. Then that means there's another altar. And here the scripture is alluding to the fact that we, the Jewish Christians, have an altar from which those who serve the tent or the priests have no right to eat. Uh, Let's talk about food for a moment, shall we? Uh, how, many, how many of you guys like food, right? You can, you, can tell a lot by a, you can tell a lot by a person by what they eat. Um, so what would uh, you be right now if we just went solely by your diet? You know, if we were to look at your diet, and if, if the phrase is true, you are what you eat, like, like wh- what would you be? Okay, a we, moment of interaction. Uh, we, we have a donut. Any, anyone else here? Fried pickles. Those are disgusting. Any, anyone else? What's that? Pizza. Yeah, I for one would be just a big round tombstone pizza. You guys know this about me. Uh, tombstone would be tattooed across my forehead. Um, you are what you eat. And so somehow strangely, this verse 10 is coupling altar with eating something. Now check this out. 
in John chapter 6, guys, this is crazy. All of a sudden, God began to piece all this together for me. In John chapter 6, please see this. So Jesus said to them in a whole discussion about Jesus being the bread of life, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of, my son, of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. If it's your first time here and you've never been to church before, you're like, what kind of hotel is this? You know what I'm saying? Like, we're talking about <laughs> drinking, and, drinking blood and eating flesh. Let me, I'll explain it in one second. Whoever feeds on my flesh, you're like, even stranger, and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. I have quoted this verse all throughout my life to show how intense the call to discipleship to follow Jesus really is. But now in seeing verse 10 from chapter 13 of Hebrews, I feel like I understand it. Listen, there's one altar that represents the old covenant. And anyone on this side of the cross, any priest or any person, who still sees this altar as a means of life, is dead. It's dead in the law. You're dead in your transgressions. This has no life. The altar of sacrifice changed completely with Christ. And so like um, the ancient church, uh, the old traditional church that I used to be a part of, that would have a table in front of the church with uh, something on the altar representing something. All of a sudden, the new altar is the cross of Christ. No longer this animal sacrifice. Think of all of the animals and the blood that was shed while all of creation was longing for the cross to finally be placed on the altar. And listen to this. Every animal that was ever killed to make penance for sins under the old covenant didn't go willingly. You know what I'm saying? I mean, some animals are just stupid, and so they, they, they went without knowing what was happening. Isn't it so encouraging to know that Jesus placed himself willingly on the altar of sacrifice on the cross? Now, you may be no, no, but I, I, I saw the passion for... The, you know, the, the, I saw the passion, I saw the movie, I saw Mel Gibson, right? Like, no, 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 like you're, you're missing it. Like, I saw the people, they, they nailed him there. I saw them, I saw them beating him. Like, I, I know the story. No. Jesus, in obedience to the Father, placed himself on the altar of sacrifice. And so when Jesus says in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you see the image that he's painting? Listen, he is all-consuming. This is the only altar you need. And so if you still want to haphazardly follow the old way, it will lead to death. But the new altar of sacrifice that is the cross leads to life. As Jesus walked out of the tomb and said, come and follow me. Be all-consumed by who he is. And so what he says in verse 10 is, uh, these people have no right to eat this. To be consumed by this. To be overwhelmed by the grace that the cross is. Why? Because they're still consumed in instant, institutional religion. Isn't it amazing to be freed by the grace of God? Come on. Right? And so, like I said, this is a riddle. This is the first puzzle piece. Okay? So Jesus is the better altar, the better sacrifice, and he willingly put himself on that 
table. Verse 11 adds our next puzzle piece. This kind of gets strange. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So you uh, just see the word camp and you get excited. You like to camp, right? Like, what is he talking about here? Is this, do people go in, I saw the word tent in the verse 10. Are we going on a camping trip? Right? Like, what's happening here? That's not the case, although, uh, although it does lead me to an opportunity to say, like I always do, I hate camping. I like showers. Uh, neither here nor there. Um, what's happening here is in the Old Testament, especially on the Day of Atonement, which was the one day out of the year, the high priest would go and make sacrifice for all the people That was the one day, unlike the others, where the carcasses of the sacrifice he could not eat. Instead, he would take the carcass of the animal outside of the area of sacrifice, or the tent, outside of the camp, and it's there that he would burn the carcass. We see a description of this in Leviticus 16 that says, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung. I've, I really put this in here because I've always wanted to say dung in a teaching before. So there we have it. Um, shall be burned up with fire. Probably not smelling so good, but that was the case. Now, the next puzzle piece in our understanding is this. There's something about this old ritual that would cause these high priests to have to take the carcasses outside the camp and there burn them. Now he uses verse 11 to be able to say, verse 12, check this out, unbelievable. Verse 12 says this, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the high priests would take their sacrifice after they had bled out and they would burn the carcass. And you see the semblance that he's making? He's saying Jesus, on his altar, went outside the gate. And it represents something incredibly powerful. Cue the picture. Now, this is ancient uh, Jerusalem, and more specifically, the Temple Mount. This is where the temple was. I have conveniently for you placed a red box around a little hill. That hill is called, anyone? Golgotha. Now, when the writer of Hebrews says that he was taken outside the gates, or in reference to verse 11, outside the camp, I think we can see exactly what was uh, being meant here. Jesus was killed, placed on the altar of sacrifice, outside of what? Outside of the temple mount, outside of the city wall. Inside the city wall were all of the religious people was all the institution, was all of the good teachers and the Pharisees who said they loved God and yet looked Jesus in the face and said, crucify Him, crucify Him. Inside the gate was comfortability. Inside the gate were things that made you feel good about your ability to approach God. I can do so many great things and God will accept me. But look at this. Outside the gate, That's that's where the criminals were killed. That's where the trash was dumped. That's where people got executed. And the Savior of the universe 
is killed outside of the camp and the gate and the institution and the religion. And and as he's outside of the gate and the camp, he turns to one of his sides where a criminal was also being crucified. And many of you know the story. The thief turns to Jesus and they have a conversation. And Jesus, recognizing his faith, says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Showing what can happen outside the institution. You get outside the wall and guess what happens? Grace covers you. Christ is powerful enough. I'm putting myself on the altar of sacrifice so that thieves just like you can come to faith and know me. Anyone feel like a thief here tonight? Knowing in your heart, filled with wretched things, and yet God by His grace has completely done a work. And so I want to go back to uh, verse 12, and I want you to see this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to do what? To sanctify. Now, what does that word sanctify means? Uh, the Greek word is hagiazo or hagiazo. And it literally means holy. And holy literally means to set something apart. So Jesus came setting himself completely apart from everything that the culture understood to be following God. Comes and says, no, 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 I'm the son of God. I'm loving people, I'm blessing the hurting, I'm leading the poor, I'm talking to the widow. And all the Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 like what do you mean? This is high church, man. Like, Like we're the ones that should be looked at and adorned. But Jesus numbers himself among the transgressors to do what? To sanctify those people through his blood, to set them apart. I fear though that many of us here would claim Jesus, but find ourselves not really set apart. I fear that many of us here look at the cross and the power of the cross and yet find ourselves looking just like the world, not really sanctified by His blood, claiming it, using it when it's convenient for us, but not really set apart. So, Let's summarize these three verses, shall we? Okay, anyone want to give it a go, right? A little bit strange, a little bit awkward, but here's the point. Jesus put himself on the better altar. Anyone who still follows this altar doesn't even have the right to eat of the grace of this altar. This altar represents Jesus' bloodshed to set all those who would follow him apart from everything else. And so I sit back from that and I marvel at what the cross really does. Is it takes wretched punks like you and I, or punkettes, however you want to view yourself, right? It takes wretched punks like us and all of a sudden gives us worth. And so for those of you that came here tonight looking for worth and value and wondering what your life's all about, I just, can I just encourage you with this? Listen, you'll spend your life searching And until you land at the powerful truth of the cross, you will forever be looking for worth. Our only worth comes in his all-sufficient sacrifice. And so your, your search can be over tonight at the great altar that is the cross. That's these three verses. I know wordy, I I know a little bit confusing, but my friends, they're puzzle pieces to what the writer goes on to say. Next verse. Therefore. 
let us go outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Um, so do you guys remember puberty? Strange transition. Work with me. Do you guys remember puberty? Okay. Yes? Okay. So um, we all go through this really, really awkward uh, season. And I'm not going to get into the specifics. You're welcome. Um, but like, all, you know, I, I will say that all, I remember my first armpit hair. Anyone else? Any girls? Right? You're like, oh, no. Um, Puberty, though, is a really interesting time with your parents. My mom's actually here tonight. I love her so much. Great to have her here. And, and when, you're, when you're going through puberty, there's a strange, awkward time where you're really, at least for me, like, like your parents would kind of take you to the movies, and you would want to sit really, really far apart from them. You know what I'm saying? You're like, yeah, that'll be great. Can you pay for it? And then, by the way, I'm going to sit like 40 rows uh, away from you, and after the movie, could we walk out separate? I'll meet you at the car in like an hour, right? You're like, I want to make sure no one sees me uh, when my parents at times would bring me to school. God love them. They were great parents. They would bring me to school and you were like, hey, just park. Can you over here behind the laundry mat, like where the dumpster is, just park and just, you know, like people don't know I don't have a car. I'm 13, right? But you're just going through a stage where it's almost kind of embarrassing, you feel like, to be identified with your parents. Do you guys see what verse 13 is saying? Because Jesus went outside the camp and put himself on the altar of sacrifice, he says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, let's go right to where he is. Let's identify ourselves with Jesus. Let's put ourselves in a place Where we can consistently say, no matter what the circumstance, that's my God. That's who I'm following. That's who I desire and long to adore. Easy enough, except the fact that he says, and bear the reproach he endured. So that whole eat my flesh and drink my blood talk, and earlier, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him, means that if you go outside the camp, next slide, if you leave, if you leave what's comfortable, if you head outside of that gate, if you leave the institution, if you leave all the things that you know to be true, that you think to be true, and if you follow Christ, guess where you're following him to? My friends, you you follow him right to Golgotha. You're like, so do we have to put ourselves on a cross? No, the sacrifice is paid once for all. You could not put yourself on a cross and your blood mean anything. It doesn't. His blood is enough. But what it does mean is we're following him to where? To the place where the criminals are. To the place that seems dirty. To the place that doesn't seem comfortable. To the movement that feels organic. To the place where only Christ resides. Just because you are following Jesus, my friends, you have to get in your dome. It means that you will bear and can't expect some kind of different treatment. Are we together? When you follow Jesus outside of the wall of comfort in your life, 
you cannot expect different treatment than he got on the cross. You're like, well, well, how does that, I have never seen anyone crucified in America. How does that? It's not about the fact that you'll one day be put on a cross. It's that you're willing. It's that in your heart, you come to this place where you're like, Jesus, wherever you go, I will go. I love the phrasing of verse 13 because it says, go to him. And I know and recognize so many of you tonight are going to all sorts of comforts and pleasures and treasures and things that are providing some sort of self-worth when the scripture says, go to him. And when you go to him, you have to recognize what you're going to. Life. And at the same time, this call to suffer. And that's why, my friends, I say this to you tonight. Maybe one of the hardest things I've had to say in a few years. I feel like many of you want Jesus to identify with you. Hey, Lord, remember me on that day. When you're in all your glory, like, remember me. I hooked you up, Lord, remember? I mean, I told all kinds of people about you. I was living for you. I was saying all kinds of nice gospel pleasantries. Remember me. You want Jesus to identify him with you. And then we have the audacity to not want to identify with him. We push him off at times like the parent while we're going through puberty. Hey, I don't want to be seen with you now. When it's convenient, when you're paying for the movie, hey, uh, uh, can, yeah, can I borrow 10 bucks, right? But when the convenience is over, when the feeling is done, when the blessing seems to wane, then it's like, yeah, 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 that whole Jesus thing, we'll pick back up tomorrow. Well, all the while, if you were to meet him face to face, remember me. My contention is this. We got a whole bunch of hiders. We got a whole bunch of people that are hiding behind this brick wall, identifying yourself with yourself. And on the other side of that brick wall is this mirror, and you find yourself in a perpetual state of depression because all you see every day is your fears and your failures and your struggles. When the blessing of identifying yourself with Jesus is now myself is done and he is everything. That's why he said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I have to be all-consuming. It wasn't literally, it was, I need to be your everything. And so I'm going to develop this thought as we go on tonight, but I just feel like many of you are hiding. You want Jesus when it's nice and convenient and when everyone sees you at church. And then we all go home and we push him to the side. Uh, that's not the call. The call is to Golgotha with him. Next slide. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach, take on the same suffering that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I love this phrasing. We've seen it a couple different times in Hebrews. Next slide. In Hebrews 11, verse 16, the scripture says, But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. This is the amazing blessing of what he just said. Listen, go to Jesus. You're going to suffer. Everything's not going to be 
Like the health and wealth prosperity gospel says in America, you come to Jesus and he hooks you up. That's not true. Sometimes he does in his grace and sovereignty bless us. But suffering is just, the, is just as much of a blessing. Amen? It's just seeing it as that. And so then he says, listen, while you're enduring, guess what? You get to claim victory in the fact that there's an inheritance coming. That one day he's preparing a great city. Uh, uh, Hebrews 12 said this, put it another way. But you have come to Mount Zion, remember this teaching? And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in, and you remember this for those of you that were here, my favorite word, a festal gathering, right? How many of you guys have used festal in a sentence since then? I hope so. Um, And after tonight it'll be dung. Either way, um, an amazing, amazing truth. He's preparing for us another city. So here's the puzzle pieces. Better altar, we need to go to him, And when we go to him, we will find ourselves in a place of suffering, of bearing the things that he did, and oh, to bear that. And while we're there, we get to remember the fact that he's preparing for us a great inheritance that no no, no matter how bad it gets here, there's a day coming when it will all be restored. Anyone excited about that day? Okay. So another piece of the puzzle, and now all of this comes together. Next slide. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I had the privilege of coaching football for a couple years with uh, John Locke, who's uh, here in our community, and uh, got to coach freshman football, which is an adventure in and of itself. And I remember that season, coaching football, and it was really all we talked about. I was the freshman offensive coordinator. Many of you know I was a quarterback in college, which which meant that we threw like more than any other freshman team in history, much to John's demise. He wanted to punch me several times. We, uh, if you guys know anything about, onside, uh, uh, about football, I convinced John to onside kick about 75% uh, of the time. So we were just like miscoaching all over the place, right? But it was a blast. <laughs> but you naturally talk about what you love. And in that season of time, like that was all, like we just talked about football all of the time. And it's great and all if you're around other folks that enjoy football, but if like all of a sudden a couple people like hop into the conversation and they're like cricket players, right? God love you, you know? Like the conversation is, it like goes a different direction. But because we naturally talk about what we love, that means our voice is being heard all the time by all sorts of ears. And what's coming out of our mouth, out of the overflow of your heart, the, mars- uh, out of the, overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks, what's coming out of our Mouth is what we naturally love. And so what I have to ask you are what, are, what are the ears around you hearing? If you're naturally talking about what you're loving, what are the ears right now around you hearing? Here's what I fear. We think that the simplicity of the gospel is boring. We think that just like the football conversation... That like the gospel is just something that's to be talked about in this confines. And if like the, the outsiders come in, like all of a sudden change conversation. What I found is that people are looking for two things everywhere, love and truth. People are craving truth. And if we naturally talk about what we love, 
if we believe that the sacrifice of Christ is worth anything, if it really did save us, if this altar really was enough, if His grace was completely sufficient to take all of my wrong and sin and disgrace and all of a sudden call me His kid, if that really was enough, then my friends, I should be speaking of Him all day long. There should not be a moment of the day when the phrase praise God isn't coming out of my heart and then out of my mouth. But some of you guys have like been around those people, the praise God people, and it burns you. It makes you, you know, you're like, I, I, I don't want to be that person. Here's what I found. When all you're doing is talking about the gospel in all the ways that God is moving you to do so, all of a sudden the ears start to perk. Because they're interested, they're longing for truth. And the, the simplicity of the death on a cross by a perfect God-man and His blood enough for our forgiveness and then three days later Him walking out of a tomb, I just have to say, that just never gets old. I'm sorry. We talk about a lot here um, about gospel Christ centrality. What that means is every single week you're going to hear about Jesus. You're like, that seems kind of lame. Yeah, we don't. Um, Like, I really, listen, I really, really believe in my heart. I could stand up every single week here and just say, guys, Christ has died. Christ is risen and he's coming back. And the depth of his love is enough for you. I really believe we could just come together every week around that central, simple gospel And say, now let's go into the world and praise his name. You see what I'm saying? But for some reason, it's gotten old for you. It's like, oh, that's an old hat. That's just, you know, that's basic Christianity. Praise God for it. Because when I knew nothing, no scripture, no Bible, like so many of you here, and all I knew was the love of Christ, I say praise God for that. Obviously, his scripture grows our maturity, and that's a phenomenal thing. But my friends, the love of God and the simplicity of it must be on our lips. And that's what praise means. I'm giving thanks. I'm praising. I'm saying, God, you're good. And I'm so grateful for what you did in your work on the cross. In other words, the altar and what Jesus has done must lead to action. You recognize yourself as identifying with Jesus by praising God. So, if that was our measure, how, how's it going for you? If, identi- if identifying yourself with Jesus means that He's always on your lips, then how's that going for you? Do you find that your conversation is actually pretty worthless? That 85%, but, but Mark, you don't understand, like I have to work all day. Fair enough. Then work with a heart of integrity. And as God graces you and builds relationships and brings people around you, be intentional with them and ask them phenomenal questions about their life and seem interested. You see what I'm saying? And in doing so, God, thank you for the opportunity. My friends, that's what identifying yourself with Jesus does. And then he ends with verse 16, and I love this thought. Do not neglect to do good. (laughs) Uh, Real quick. The old way would take this verse, the old altar, the old system, and say, do good, and, and there you go. <laughs> do good, and, and God, in his mercy, might deem you as worthy of being called his kid. 
But the good now isn't to earn his approval. The good now that's coming out of us, empowered by the Spirit in us, is in response to who he is. You guys see what I'm saying? Worship is a response to how God has initiated. And so we look at the sacrifice that's been laid on the altar, the willing Christ. And then we say in response to that, like, I have to follow you, and you are good. And yes, I will fail and struggle, and in those times I will receive your grace. But I won't neglect it or to share what you have for such sacrifices. And I love this phrase, are pleasing to God. Now, all of this puzzle begs one question. Is Jesus worth identifying yourself with? And many of you right now in your lives are answering that question by hiding. You come out every once in a while when it's convenient for you. You're like, oh, here I am again. The Christian, the follower of God, remember me, everybody. But most of the time, you're spent behind the cave, behind the brick wall, looking in the mirror in a state of depression. And so I thought we should go over a few reasons why you might be hiding. The first is this, and I've already touched on it a little bit. Uh, you don't want to be, quote unquote, that guy or that girl. What I mean is, you read about uh, like praising God all the time, and you've been around some spastic Christian before, right? Who all they, like they had like a Christian belt, you know what I'm saying? And some of the t-shirts that we looked at last week, and all, I mean, they, they were great at just all the time communicating. And you got to this place in your heart, and you didn't have the heart to say it because you felt like it was incredibly mean. But in your heart, you're like, enough with the Jesus stuff. Like, seriously, figure out the right forum. Have you ever had that person or six around you, right? You're like, seriously, you're giving all of us a bad name because they think you're just some moving, you know, walking Christian bookstore. Like, take it easy, you know? And because of being burned by that, or at least perceived, you go the other way. You're like, well, I don't want to be that guy or that girl, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to do like the cool Christian thing. I'm never going to talk about the Lord. Because it's better just to, you know, build relationships over the long haul. And then one day after seven years, like then I'll be able to share Christ. And yes, at times the Spirit may guide in that, but it won't be out of laziness. And I feel like that's where many of you find yourselves. Hiding identifying yourself by uh, praising God just because you don't want to be the crazy Christian. And you know what? As I was studying for all this, I kind of go this way. I would rather be the crazy Christian, I think. I would rather find myself in a place where out of the genuineness of my heart, I'm just always talking about the Lord. Is that such a bad thing? I've overcompensated even in my own life. And I wonder if you have too. I don't mean a walking Christian bookstore, though, just to clarify. Now, second thing is this. Many of you aren't identifying yourself with Jesus because you feel like by identifying yourself with others that, that that's enough. Let me say it this way. Your association with Christians doesn't make you associated with Jesus. Your association with Jesus makes you associated with Christians. Is that clear? One of the blessings of knowing Christ is the body of Christ. And I give thanks every day for you. 
God, thank you that we have such an unbelievable body of Christ to get to journey with. But just by me showing up here every week and living vicariously through some of you that appear fired up for him doesn't mean a hill of beans. I need to go to him outside the camp and claim him as the king and lord of my life. And my mom was a strong believer and still is, but my mom couldn't do that for me. My dad couldn't. None of you can. It's my heart, and many of you have been feeding off the fire of others for a long, long time. It's time tonight to ask yourself the question, what will you do with Jesus? I know what he's doing, but that's not the question. What are you doing? So many of you are hiding behind that. Thirdly, uh, your fear just controls you. I mean controls you. Your anxious thoughts... Your fear of man, the overwhelming sense in you that if you finally did take a stand in that group of people that they would all shun you. Remember, your association with Christ means that you can't expect better treatment. They killed him. Jesus says in another part of the Gospels, he says, they hated me, they will hate you. And it should only be because you're bearing the name of Jesus and not protecting yourself. Don't misguide those things. And so for those of you that have found yourself in a place of, yeah, yeah, well, identifying myself with Jesus would mean that, would mean I would actually like, I couldn't, I couldn't talk that way anymore around that, those, that group of people. I couldn't function like I am. Like, let's just be honest, many of you guys are living completely double lives. This group of people, one thing. With this group of people, another thing. No, no, no. It's time to come out of that fear. Identify yourself with Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why I end here with number four that says this. Man. This is my literal biggest fear as a pastor, period. Is that the church and its people become so robotic that we forget the altar of sacrifice. And you know what happens when you forget the altar of sacrifice? You stop praising God. And so you can tell pretty easily tonight, if you're identifying yourself with Him or not, have you forgotten this? Is the praises of God on your lips? Is your life looking more and more like Jesus every day? Or... Do you find yourself pulling back? Do you find yourself retreating? Do you find yourself on your heels? Do you find yourself burdened by your fears? If that's the case, my friends, then you've forgotten the very thing that gave you life in the first place. I look at this table, this altar, this cross, and even now, and I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. Quick math, a long time, right? I believe right now more than ever that the cross of Christ has completely changed my world. And yes, there are times and seasons when it's tough to go in and out and to battle that. But I'm telling you right now, the truth of this is that I should and could and am able and listen, have the right to, unlike verse 10 said of the, the old law, because of the grace of Christ, I have the opportunity to come to him outside the gate. Now, I want to close with this thought. Remember my story about Heidi in the beginning? 
You guys remember that? If you were uh, taking your children upstairs, um, you're just going to have to work with this. What if Heidi would have emailed me and instead of me trying to lay on the guilt trip to her, what if she was actually doing that to me? Like I'd sacrificed and watched the kids and sent her away to vacation. And then she, like, typed one day, man, Mark, you would love everything about this place. They're all of your favorite things. There's all-you-can-eat meat, you know? And eat, dude, right? Some of you just perked up, right? You're like, all-you-can-eat meat? Where is it? Here? Like, the pool is amazing. The weather is great. Man, Mark, I really wish you are here. Darn shame you're down in the snow. And then, like, 20 minutes later, right, I got a... I got another email. Man, Mark, miss you so much. L O L O. You know, like I. <laughs> and I was the one sacrificing. And all I got was this like, take it for granted attitude. That's exactly where we find ourselves tonight. taking for granted the cross of Christ and living in such a way that's diminishing the power of what sacrifice really is. Sending the messages to the Lord, we really only need you when it's convenient. It sure is nice on this side. I wish you were here. I want you guys to stand in the have an unfortunate reality to share with us. That's where you find yourself tonight. Mark chapter 8 says this. These are the words of Jesus. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Many of you are finding yourselves in a place where you're completely ashamed of who he is. Ashamed to identify yourself with Him. Ashamed to say He's my God. Taking complete and full advantage of the sacrifice that He willingly put on the altar. And the scripture says then, if if that's your approach, then He will also be ashamed of you. Anyone else right now just feeling desperate in your heart. Just overwhelmed with a sense in your heart like, God, I don't want to be shameful of the amazing gift that you've given in your son. I don't want to spend one more day thinking that the simplicity of the gospel isn't worth talking about all the time. I want to spend one more day hiding So right now, I'm calling the hiders out. It's time to come out of hiding. 
I remember through my youth ministry years, one of my biggest contentions of the traditional church was no one is having any fun. No one's living life here. Everyone seems dead. May that not be said of us. If we're not ashamed of him, and if we're to identify with him, then my brothers and sisters, that brings freedom now. Are we together? That opens our hearts and exudes the zeal from us that says, I must praise his name from this day till forevermore. So don't hide anymore. No more hiding in your shame or your regret or your remorse or in your fear. Or living your faith out through someone else. He provides the way to come out of that wall of comfort fully exposed. And then he says, by my love and grace, you're my kid. So God, I pray that for my brothers and sisters in this room, that you will pull us out of our hiding cave. That we will give you thanks for the blessed sacrifice of your son. We will find ourselves in a place longing to praise your name. Longing to follow you, God. I thank you that the cost of discipleship is costly. Empower us through our fear and failure to rest in you, God.